0: Thanks, well, welcome once again. To RUF. Um, my name, for those of you who didn't catch it, is Sid Bruin, and RUF is short for Reform University Fellowship, uh, which is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve um, Davidson College. Let me tell you a little bit more about RUF because I feel like it needs explanation. Um, RUF, RUF is for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the shy introvert who just wants to be left alone, for the social extrovert who never wants to be left alone. For those of you who are excited to be back, so much so that you're, you're uh, pacing the halls of chambers, looking for loose assignments, or maybe that flyer that you missed that was put up three seconds ago. Um, and those also of you who have already made Delta Airlines your homepage... <laughs> And you're scrolling every day looking for flights for the next break, and even this weekend. So really what I'm trying to say here is RF exists for those of you who aren't really sure why you're here right now, uh, and also those of you who uh, really need to be here because you know you need to hear something true about who you are and who God is tonight. In other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, thanks for coming. We're so glad you're here. Uh, I hope you feel welcomed by RUF. We hope that you get to know RUF and RUF gets to know you. Uh, part of something that's different that we're doing this semester is we're trying to introduce you to a, a number of different students through kind of reading the scriptures and praying and, and doing uh, the worship so uh, that you don't just think RUF is me um, because, you know, I'm, I'm older. So um, And that's kind of weird for some of you. Okay, so... Look, um, also, I really want to say thank you if you're new, and it looks like a lot of you are new. Um, I'm really thankful for you here. It takes a lot of courage to come to something new, um, and we, just, we don't take that for granted, and we hope you feel really welcome. Um, and while I'm on that topic, uh, there are some great snacks over here. Um, so afterwards, we're going to have a little fellowship time, snack time. I'd like to thank the sloops in the back. John and Joyce, if you just raise your hands. Um, uh, these people love you, and they brought things to serve you. So please introduce yourselves to them. Get to know them. They're wonderful folks. Um, and they're really an expression of the local church loving you um, here right now. So I passed from the REF sign-up. Um, there's no pressure to sign that up. Uh, maybe that's too late for some of you who already felt compulsed. Okay. So this semester, we're, uh, we're moving on from Colossians, and we're moving backwards, both in time and in the scriptures. We're going to look at the life of David. The life of David. David's story occurs in the first part of the Bible, which we call the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, it particularly occurs in the books of First and Second Samuel, and also uh, the very first part of First Kings. David lived about 3,000 years ago, most people believe, and he was a king of Israel. But those aren't the reasons why we're actually studying David. Those are cool historical facts, and maybe it's nice to have a Bible sword drill in your pocket. But what we're looking at, uh, there's a reason that his story is one of the most famous stories in all of world literature and, and in the Bible. Let me give you two reasons why I think um, the story of David is so captivating for all of us. The first reason is that David is in many ways so ordinary. He's so much like us, isn't he? I mean, as you study him with, along with us this semester, you'll see his life is filled with successes and they're filled with failures. He's got these intense moments of stress and disappointment, as well as these moments where the air clears and he gives a belly laugh and sings at the top of his lungs. And David is so relatable. He gets angry and he gets jealous and he messes up big time, just like all of us here do. And he has these moments when he prays and he cries and even dances for joy, a lot like we do. David is the kind of guy, according to one pastor uh, who I listened to, who probably had blue jeans underneath his royal robe, if blue jeans existed in 1000 BC. Okay? So I just want to say he's earthy. He's the kind of guy that we would know and relate to. Yet at the same time, David is also captivating because he's so not like us. He's an Iron Age king who is fighting for tribal unification in what is ancient Palestine. But more, his life is actually meant to point us to another king, to King Jesus, the son of David. The Bible tells us that David's every success and every failure points to Jesus' successful life, his flawless, perfect life, and his sacrificial death that rescues those who believe in it. So I've tried to summarize some of this and keep first things first, and you'll get used to this, in a title, a phrase. Okay, The Life of David, our study of David, the title for it is this. A God, the God, after our own hearts. The God after our own hearts. Yes, David is described this way, for those of you who are Bible scholars, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, a man after God's own heart. And his life does give us a very powerful picture of the Christian life and things that we can imitate and lean into there. But the point of this study is not dare to be more like King David. The point is not that David's story is about imitating a person. Because David's story, the Bible story, is primarily not about men or women. The primary, It's primarily about God. So, think about it. Even important kings, even really good people and really bad people are not the central focus of the narrative that we're going to look at this semester. The central focus is God. The life of David is primarily about a particularly loving God. The God who loves your makeup off. The God who loves you without makeup. The God who loves your resume out of your hand. The God who loves you in a holy hug. And not in a firm handshake that exudes confidence. What I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm getting ahead of the passage, so let me return there by way of a story from my own life, okay? Um, It was the fall of eighth grade. Do we have to go there? And honestly, I was kind of a big deal in 8th grade. Um, I didn't know it then, but I was reaching the peak of my popularity in my life. (laughs) Believe it or not, life was going pretty well for me. I was in the 1% that life feels good in 8th grade for. Um, I hung out with the cool kids. The cool kids, by the way, were the ones with the older brothers who knew the college bands and the high school girls. And I was pretty athletic in the sports that mattered in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from, which were like football. <laughs> See, <best? laughs> This ability at football um, actually led me to the gym coach's office. And during one lunch where I got to pick the teams for gym football, which I was pretty excited about at the time. So... There I was with a group of other students picking the teams for gym, gym, physical education football, which was the big deal of the eighth grade. Trust me. Um, so we were practicing for weeks, but we were about to play for real. League play was about to begin. Well, what, however real gym class football really gets, like 30 minutes, then a whistle. But I assumed that we, uh, we would get to pick the team's recess style. I figured we'd just do it at gym class, and everyone would just kind of line up against the fence. And I would just kind of, kind of pick out the people like you always do in the kickball game, right? The person that shouts the loudest at you to get your attention or the person that you recognize in the crowd who you really like or the person that promises you something that you really want um, or the person that just looks really, really strong and looks like they can kick the ball to the moon. But that's not how this whole thing went down. We were in an office with this giant list, the alphabetic order of students in the grade and I had to pick my team. and so of course I blanked every time it was my turn and I panicked and I picked people just out of, randomly. But you know what I picked the, brand, the people I picked randomly turned out to be all of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know why that is? Because I picked all the cool kids. you know what that did for my team? Not very good things. <laughs> do you know why? Because basically, I picked the, some of the kids had athletic ability because that meant a lot in eighth grade in Columbus, Ohio. But also, I picked a lot of the people that um, had older brothers that were cool. Remember, that's what it means to be cool in eighth grade. So we didn't do that great in the PE football league, and um, we were awful at the bottom. Um, and another time, uh, another place, eighth grade football PE league was also the time where. I cried for one of the last times of my life. We can talk about that another time. Okay. A little teaser for another story some other day. Okay. So some of you are really thinking, who cares? (laughs) It's like P.E. football, eighth grade. What is the point of this story? Does this have anything to do with the Bible? Why are you up here? (laughs) Um, But look, you've surely all had this experience in some way or another, whether you did the picking or you stood to be picked. Maybe that moment that sticks for you was far back in your life. Maybe it was recess kickball. Maybe it was a gender-segregated dance where someone picked you out of the crowd. Maybe it was a history class project where you got to reenact some famous trial and someone picked you to be the lead prosecutor. Okay? Or maybe it happened more recently, like, you were, like when you were waiting for the fat envelope to arrive in your mailbox that marked that you got admitted to college. Or maybe it was when you're right now and you're rushing for a fraternity or a few years ago when you did that. Or maybe it's sweating out a summer job offer even as we speak. These moments are what it's like to be chosen but also to not get chosen. And these moments everybody has. But even further, most of us also know what it's like to do the choosing. Don't we? But I think we don't know Or at least we don't acknowledge enough the fact that too often we're very bad at choosing. We're very bad at choosing the right people. Too often we look at the appearance of the person versus his or her internal reality. Whether that appearance is strictly visible and obvious, like good looks or talent, or that appearance is something a little bit more invisible but still obvious, like how the 8th grade me picked all of my cool friends. My bigger point is is that we often don't really know how to find who we're really looking for in life. We don't really know how to find who we're really looking for in life. And more importantly, sometimes we don't even know what we're looking for in the first place. Okay, So we don't know how to find what we're looking for, and sometimes we don't even know what we're looking for in the first place. Thankfully, our passage, 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13, addresses this reality head-on in this form of a story they tell us about God choosing the next king of Israel from a lineup. A lineup that looked a lot like the recess playground for kickball. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1-13, through we're told a surprising truth. And it's this. We're all looking for a king who looks like weakness, but who has a king's rescuing heart. We're all looking for a king who looks like weakness, but has God's rescuing heart. Our story tonight unpacks that stunning truth in Samuel, God's prophet's quest to find a king. is two actions in that process. The first action, you can see this in your outline in the handout, is that Sal, uh, Samuel, I'm going to try not to get all the S names messed up here, Saul, Samuel, Solomon, okay. Samuel travels to Bethlehem to find a king, and in this journey, we discover what we're really looking for. And it's not what we expect. We're looking for a king. Second, in verses 6 through 13, Samuel chooses God's king. And in this selection process, we see where to find what we're really looking for. And it's not where we expect. The king is buried in weakness. So again, verses 1 through 5, what we're looking for a king. Verses 6 through 13, where to find what we're looking for. Uh, strength buried in weakness. Let's look at the first five verses. Walk Samuel's footsteps along with him to find a king. Look, a close reading of this passage provokes a lot of questions, doesn't it? Right? Look at verses 2 through 3, or 2 through 5, for instance. Why is God so kind to Samuel when he's so scared? I mean, why does he give him a heifer? Okay? What are the elders of Bethlehem so frightened of? Why? Are they scared of Samuel? Why? And finally, what's so exciting about a heifer and a sacrifice? How does that change the whole mood from fear to joy? These are all really good questions, and they show what I love about biblical narrative as a genre. Here's what I love about biblical narrative as a genre. It's like life. Okay? The Bible stories encourage us to ask why, just like life encourages us to ask why, to ask good questions about what's going on and why it's going on. And also, like life, the answers, especially about the smaller things, are often not very clear. But the bigger takeaway of this story, of these verses, the first six verses, is extremely clear. The bigger takeaway is in verse 1. And verse 1 is telling us why all these, why, um, sorry, why God sent fearful Samuel to Bethlehem. Why he gave him a heifer. And what that has for us to do with anything? And it also tells us why all these verses in this passage is in the Bible tonight. What is it? Verse 1 is a powder keg. The powder keg that explodes this narrative forward. Verse 1 tells us Samuel is sad about the failure of Israel's first king, Saul. And more importantly, it tells us that God's people need a new and better king. God's people need a new and better king. A king that's ultimately chosen not by the people, but by God Himself. But at this point, you're sort of saying, why do we need a king again? Why do we need a king anyway? I mean, this is America. This is the 21st century. Didn't we, like, fight the Revolutionary War to get rid of kings? Uh, I the Tea Party, uh, not the current one, uh, the Boston <laughs> one. Okay? Didn't we already do that? Is anyone from Virginia here? Do you know what your state, your state seal has, right? The, the state seal has a picture of a guy with his foot on the neck of a king who's on his back, okay? And it's literally, this is the state seal, look it up. And it says in Latin, thus always for kings. Okay, we hate kings in America. That is anti-democratic, it's anti-American. Well, it's not communist, but it's close. Okay? A king goes against the grain of our lives, right? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Where does a king fit in there? It's my money. It's my time. It's my body. It's my schedule, isn't it? Yet the Bible tells us that our hearts were made for. They long for a king. The Bible tells us this in an interesting way, though. It doesn't just say it outright. It tells us a story. It gives us a narrative from the very beginning, at the very beginning of the world, at the very center of human history, with all of the people, at the very beginning, and then it narrows down to a group of people in the Middle East, in modern-day Palestine, who are given everything, everything they could possibly want, but they're profoundly unhappy. And they're not just unhappy, they're self-destructive. And this self-destructiveness le- reaches its climax in the book of Judges. Have you read this book? This book is the very end of the book. Everything good has been spoiled. Society is rotting on the vine. From the inside out and the outside in. And the Bible very, very graphically depicts this rottenness in two stories that are frankly rated R. Okay? I'm going to tell them to you. <laughs> if you're 17... Cover your ears. <laughs> the first story, okay, is a priest for hire who turns who turns God into a prophet for a rich man and turns his God into a way to bless the vicious violence of a renegade tribe called Dan. And here's the punchline. This priest for hire is none other than the grandson of Moses. The person who parted the Red Sea. In two generations we've gotten here. But it gets worse. The last story, the second story, is even more depraved. Okay? Another person who handles the things of God, that is a Levite, takes a prostitute and travels to the tribe of Benjamin. And there he seeks shelter, only to have the whole town come to his door where he's staying and demand to have sex with him, to gang rape him. And he gives his prostitute to the the crowd, and the crowd has their way with this woman until she dies in the morning light. And you know what he does? He doesn't cry. He cuts her into 12 pieces and sends them to the very extent of the empire, the extent of the nations of Israel. Okay? And you know what that causes? A civil war that nearly wipes out the entire tribe of Benjamin. And do you know how they solve it? They steal wives from other tribes to give the Benjaminites wives. This happens. It's in the Bible, okay? It's the very end of Judges. And that's how it ends. That's the last story. the book of judges ends like that. It's an utter and complete mess. Blazed throughout the end of the, these two stories, and also the very last verse itself, is this refrain: "In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes." Judges 21:25. And this is the backdrop to 1 Samuel 16. And the backdrop to each and every one of our hearts. A longing for a king and a kingdom. In the words of Andrew Peterson, songwriter Andrew Peterson, we want a king on a throne, full of power, with a sword in his fist. Will there ever be, ever be a king like this? Full of wisdom, full of strength. The hearts of the people are his. Will there ever be, will there ever be, A king like this. And we see this desire at Davidson, don't we? Think about it for a second. What's the end goal of our many, many service projects? What is the purpose behind the Center for Civil Engagement, or Civic Engagement, or International Justice Mission, or Bonner Scholarships in general? Why do many people in this room and on this campus Want to work for globally minded nonprofits and non governmental organizations? Is it because they pay big time? Is it because all of a sudden your tuition is going to be wiped free? No. Why do we want to do this? Because we all desire cosmic peace. We all desire cosmic justice. We want universal prosperity for everybody. This is what the Bible calls shalom. Shalom. Listen to what Cornelius Plantinga, how he defines the word shalom, and see if you don't agree that this is what we want deep down inside. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, and justice, fulfillment, and delight. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind, or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and a delight. A rich state of affairs in which the natural needs are satisfied. And natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. Shalom is the healthy impulse behind our perfectionism. Shalom is the healthy impulse behind our perfectionism. We're driven by and working for a perfect state of affairs for ourselves, for everyone else, and for this planet. And verses one and three of our passage link this rich state of affairs, this universal flourishing, and this perfect kingdom to a king. A king. Verse three uses the Hebrew word Masha. Mashah means to anoint. And it's describing this king. He's quite literally the Messiah. He's the bringer of shalom. He will fix what's broken in the universe and he will heal every person's wounds. And this Messiah King is exactly who we're looking for on service Saturdays. And in the midst of our extracurricular clubs, and in our job interviews in Washington, DC, which is where all nonprofits exist, it is whom God has Samuel search out in Bethlehem. But God's people would have to wait a thousand years after Samuel. Because King David isn't the Messiah. He was just a shadow that points to the son of David. Born in Bethlehem. Born in a manger. Jesus the Christ. Literally, Jesus the Messiah. Hopefully we're now convinced of the need, I'm sure of the need for Samuel's mission, to find a king. But what can we learn from the process, the journey? Where do we find the king we're all looking for? This is our second and last point tonight. It occurs in verses 6 through 13, if you look along with me. Beginning in verse 6, Samuel gets to work, and he begins trying to find a king. But this king is actually pretty hard to find, surprisingly. He's not where we expect him to be at all. Samuel is a picture of us here, right? He represents us in the story. He gets this gut feeling like, i got it. I know. I've got a hunch. I know who it's supposed to be. And he looks at Eliab and he goes, strongest? Check. Oldest? Got it. Tallest? Bingo. And he goes, this is who God wants. This is the future king of Israel. I'm it. He's got it. But you know what happens? God's word overrules his gut feeling. God tells us that our human ideas of who we need are often all wrong. Why? Because they're based on outward appearances and not on the heart. Like it or not, when we're put in a place to choose, we often choose poorly. And we make these bad choices based on appearances. I mean, look, if you don't believe me, just look at the the social science data. I mean, how how many reports, how many case studies do we need of this happening? Tall and attractive people running the world. <laughs> they are more likely, according to the data, to be elected leaders, more likely to make more money than, and even get innocent verdicts in trials. All proven. Okay? Malcolm Gladwell has made a career out of this. This is all he writes about. <laughs> okay? Think about this. Have you guys read what the dog saw? I mean, half the articles in there are basically telling us that experts in their fields cannot tell which teachers or quarterbacks are most likely to succeed at the next level that businesses mistake narcissism for future management and that nearly every job interview is decided in the first 15 seconds a snap judgment based on appearance but we don't need Gladwell to tell us this, that our choosers are broken we see this every day don't we? Just think about the way we approach dating. Can we go there? Can I talk about that? Is that uncomfortable? (laughs) Probably. Look, we automatically rule out most of the people who would make great spouses based on physical appearance. Have you thought about that? Okay? Every one of you has a socially acceptable hotness radar in this room. Honestly. Do we realize... Don't we realize that our spouses will get less attractive as they age? That it isn't, and that's actually not going to even matter? Because what's on the outside fades in our appreciation, and what's on the inside grows. Maybe we don't realize this because we're too busy dancing in front of the mirror or dancing to avoid the mirror. Or think about it this way, the way we pick churches or college ministries. I'm going there, too. We're just going to get real awkward here. Okay? (laughs) Think about it this way. How do you know you will like a church or a college ministry in one visit? How do you know within five minutes that this is the place for you? <laughs> Honestly. We're making a snap judgment based on appearances. And then there's what's at the heart of this passage and behind all the ways that we choose dates and churches. Okay, Think about it this way. How do we choose those we're going to follow? How do we cho- choose the, ca- the lowercase s saviors in our life? In the words of a former professor of mine, Steve Brown, do you realize that the most godly person you know is not the most godly person? Okay? You just think he is. The most godly person probably doesn't even know he or she is the most godly person because part of godliness is humility. A big piece, in fact. Okay? But thankfully for us, God is not like us the Lord looks on the heart. He sees inward strength buried in the outward appearances of weakness. Through Samuel, he calls for the king Israel needs, David in verses 11 and 12. Look, even though David is so small and the Hebrew word captures this perfectly, it means so small, so young, and so weak. You know David's dad doesn't even invite him to the party. He's like a male Cinderella. He's out there doing the cheap chores and there's the party over here. Okay? He's not even important enough for his dad to take him to the kingly lineup. Okay, Even though David is thought to be only good for the least prestigious job in all of Israel and on the farm, the farm is of Jesse, which is tending the sheep, Okay, David is the right man for the job. Why? Because he's a heart after God's own heart. That's why he's the right king. And really the passage is telling us something very profound and very challenging and actually kind of surprising. It says that you and I would never pick Jesus. We would never pick Jesus God's David's greater descendant. We would never pick him out of a kingly lineup ever. And that's what the prophet tells us why it is. Prophet Isaiah says it this way. I'm going to quote Andrew Peterson again giving a paraphrase of Isaiah. Same song that I quoted earlier. He'll bear no beauty or glory, rejected, despised. A man of such sorrow will cover our eyes. But he'll take up our sickness, carry our tears. For his people he will be pierced. He will be crushed for our evils. Our punishment feel. By his wounds we will be healed. Do you see what Isaiah and the rest of the Bible did there for just a second? It took the fact that we, were, that we would never in a million years pick Jesus, that we reject Jesus, and it made it the very grounds by which Jesus chooses us. Do you see that reversal? The person that we despise is the person that loves us. He chooses us for himself. Us, sick and sad, wounded and wicked. Us in our insignificant, sheep-keeping obscurity. Us. Jesus, by his grace and our heart's faith, chooses to rescue, then make much of us. Even when the Jesses in our families or the religious Samuels in our lives look at us and go, you're an Eliab. You're so talented that you count on to say yes to everything and no to nothing. Do you feel that pressure? Or maybe you feel the pressure of being one of the five brothers that no one remembers. Aminadab, Shema, and the people weren't even named. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay? Maybe you feel like that person, and you're so already worn out and overwhelmed, and it's only the second week of the semester. Come on. I should feel better about myself, and I feel like I've just got to do something so that I'm not counted out. You see, God doesn't pass us by. God doesn't pass over us even when we're trapped in the unhealthy side, the predominant side of our perfectionism. This is because when God is captain, he lines up humanity against the cosmic chain link of the cosmos, and he picks his all-star rescue team. And you know who he picks? He isn't looking for the cool people. He isn't looking for the capable people. He isn't looking for the athletes, The loud people, the people that promise him great stuff. He isn't even looking for the good girls and the nice guys. No. God often picks the incapable and the unpopular, God picks the last first. He sees the hearts that know that we are the least able to save ourselves. And this is because God is in the business of making sad and bad things come untrue. And you know what? He wants us to join his kingly business, spreading his shalom all over the place. More on that next week. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to look at a passage like this to see the way that you love us that you uh, make us feel in the midst of our awkwardness, our nakedness, our vulnerability, standing in that line thinking about what we're worth, that you don't care, that you robe us in robes that aren't ours, that you love us because of your son Jesus. And I pray that we would know that right now in this room, but in the course of this week in chambers and Baker, whether we're in our dorms, maybe even off campus, I pray that you'd help us never to forget the way that you'd never forget about us. We ask this, oh Jesus, in your name. Amen.